Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. This is the second of a four-episode long special on the MENA region here at the European VC. This special series of episodes focuses on everything MENA VC, bridging the gap with its European counterparts. We intend to shed light on the ins and outs of venture in the MENA region and promote collaboration between these two beautiful regions, Europe and MENA. For this special series of episodes, we welcome our dear friend and special co-host, Mustafa Gadot. And as our guest, we're happy to welcome Omar. He's the founding partner and CEO of Raid Ventures, a Saudi venture capital firm that invests in seed and early stage startups. Raid Ventures has invested in more than 40 innovative businesses in the MENA region. Omar believed early on that corporations must adapt in order to survive the digital age and that tech startups will have a transformative and disruptive impact on the traditional business landscape. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up and coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Omar, thank you so much for joining us for this special episode where we're diving deep on the MENA region. And Mustafa, thanks a million for accepting to be the co-host for this special series. No doubt that our audience knows that I know very little about the MENA region and what the dynamics are like there. So thanks a million for joining us on the show. Thank you, too. I'm very excited to, to have this podcast with you, Andreas and Mustafa. Thanks for the intro, Andreas. Pleasure to be here with you. Welcome, Omar, to the show Omar is the founding partner of Riot Ventures, and he has over 17 years of experience in senior positions in the corporate environment. Previously, he was the CEO of Al Majdoui Manufacturing, one of the great businesses of Al Majdoui family, which cornered Stone Riot Ventures back in its early days, first as a corporate venture capital and later as a bureau-bred VC fund. Omar currently serves on several boards of leading startups and organizations such as Masul, Fodex, Trilla, Tweq, Endeavor Saudi Arabia, and the Saudi Venture Capital and Private Equity Association. With a little intro out of the way, welcome to the show again, Omar. How are you today? Hi, hi, Mustafa. Thank you. Thank you so much for this very lovely introduction. Actually, you saved me because I can't really introduce myself properly always. So uh, thanks for the intro. Thank you, Andreas, for the host. It's very lovely to meet you guys and to also let's talk together about what's happening in the Middle East and North African region. Awesome. Before we start, I want just to take the time to hear a bit about you personally. You've got a great story coming from a family office and starting ride, getting into the startups and the venture scene. But let's start on the personal side. Tell us your story. How did you get here today? Yeah, thank you. So actually, to know if, if a VC is successful and has a great story, you need to wait for at least 10 years. So until now, we can't know if we, whether we are successful or not. But there are some indicators, let's say. The story started back in 2015. 
and it was very organic. So I started myself investing in startups in Dubai. That was driven by pure passion. It wasn't really driven by any vision or something like that. So when I started to invest, I found myself dragged to this business and I found myself really fell in love with the way that those guys and girls are trying to disrupt the inefficiencies and the businesses that are not working properly from their perspectives. So this is where we I found myself very, very, very engaged with the discussions that they have, the level of intelligence, the level of discussions. It was really exciting to me. So I started to spend more time with them until I found myself spending about 80% of my professional time. And then I told myself, this is not really fair for the business that I'm running. So I resigned. The, after that, the family was very generous to support me in the beginning by uh, a smaller location to at least try the idea of a VC in Saudi Arabia. It was the first privately owned VC in Saudi Arabia. It was a bit risky for, for everyone, for the family, for me, for everyone. I'm, I was about 39 years old back then. So to change your career at 39, it's a crazy idea. So I tried to change my career and it worked. It worked. I was lucky that the time was, was good. If I started maybe 2014 or 13, maybe I will never really see what I'm, what I'm seeing now or, or enjoying what I'm enjoying now. Maybe just unpack that message, because why would you say that 15 was such a good vintage to start in? Yeah, uh, so 15 is the year that the kingdom approved Vision 2030. And Vision 2030 came with a lot of changes in Saudi Arabia, a lot of changes. And you know, you know for a fact that change is actually the fuel of, of entrepreneurship. So, yeah, the, the change that Saudi Arabia has done in the last uh, seven years is tremendous to the level that we are still not believing that this has happened in Saudi in the span of seven years. So uh, the biggest change for me as a VC, I think it was like embracing the venture capital and entrepreneurship, tech entrepreneurship in Saudi Arabia that came with a lot of incentives and a lot of money also to support this direction. And that's where I found myself also, and of course, many others who are investing, that we are lucky that we started in this year. So the vintage 2015, 16 and 17 in Saudi Arabia seems to be a very, very lucrative vintage so far. I love this, right? Because it shows exactly why when you want to understand VC in a new region, you need to speak to the people who are there. And we will also have at some point a longer either event or interview with you on your position as an LP and how your, your family acts. And I think that that conversation is going to be so interesting because many of our listeners are European and thinks about Saudi Arabia and, and the MENA region in a bit of, I would say, stereotypical way and imagining that the streets are running or laced with gold and you can just go there and then you can raise as a European VC. But the industry is completely different down there. I'd, I'd love and I, I see you reacting here on the camera. So I'd love you just to put one little word to that and then we'll get back to your GP story. <laughs> yeah, so of course there is a lot of money in Saudi Arabia and there is a lot of money in Germany and, and also in France and everywhere in the world. What we are looking for as VC managers is the money that is aware about the asset class and the asset class circumstances and consequences. And this is where I think we... Uh, until now, in Saudi Arabia, you will not find enough money of this type. So, yes, there is a lot of money. Uh, yes, you can be lucky and find someone who can back you with big check. But it's not likely, it's unlikely to have this type of, of fundraising, uh, let's say seamless fundraising in Saudi Arabia so far. 
We are working on it. I think there is a lot of, because I'm also vice chairman of Venture Capital Association and the CEO and the team of the VCA are doing a great job creating awareness and creating also like influence to the policymakers to make sure that the VC asset class will be more and more established in Saudi Arabia. With time, the VC managers, either in Saudi, either in the region or from also abroad, they will find that Saudi Arabia is maturing much faster than maybe the surrounding countries because the efforts of uh, VCA and of the also many of the government entities is tremendous to really create this level of awareness much faster than the normal organic uh, trend. So I'm optimistic. So for VC managers, if you want me to address my message to the European VCs, VC managers with a minimal track record will be very hard for them to raise any money from Saudi Arabia or from the GCC. But those who have a track record, I think there is an increasing awareness of really uh, finding those type of managers to invest with. Now, uh, if you go to a normal family office in Saudi Arabia, which is also a concept that is emerging, but not established yet in a proper way. Uh, if you go to any family office, you will start seeing a smaller location of VC PE started to emerge in their wealth or their AM, which is a very good sign. And that is where I think I'm saying that I'm optimistic because that in five years ago, it wasn't really, I think, uh, no one was talking except, of, of course, maybe a handful of uh, family offices. Most of the family offices, you can see their allocation is mainly in the real estate or in the stocks exchange or in some other assets that may not really be also working well. Back in 2016-17, we started to see more and more families allocating small portions of their money to managers. Now, which manager they should seek? It's also a learning curve, another learning curve. Should I go with, with the managing uh, VCS managers or should I go with more established VCS managers? Uh, how can I reach them? How can I uh, compare uh, numbers and track records and these type of things? Many of the learnings that are uh, now under establishment. And I think five years from now will be the VC uh, allocation in Saudi Arabia should be in a very healthy way especially for the regional VCs. Yeah. Omar, if I may jump in here, following up on what you just said regarding the family offices, we all witnessed and noticed this uh, tremendous change of family offices in the region getting into the venture capital scene, whether as LBs or even starting to invest directly into startups. From your perspective, what was the turning point for them to start to get into the scene? Were they motivated by successful exits like Kareem? Were they motivated by, you know, following the lead of other successful family offices getting into the scene? You used to be uh, on that side of the business before. So from your perspective, how did this happen and why this happening? Very good question, Mustafa. So I think, uh, as you mentioned, Kareem was really a very strong catalyst to the whole ecosystem, uh, from the investors to founders to everything. The whole ecosystem actually went to the next level after Kareem exit. Could you put a few words to Karim, just because many of our listeners will not be as aware? <laughs> yeah, so Karim established back in 2011 or 12. I don't remember exactly the year. Yes. And they were following actually the, the model of Uber. So they tried to make something like Uber in the region before Uber came to the region. And the founders, Mudassar, Magnus and Abdullah, they were actually some of the smartest people around. So to see them work in this domain is something also we haven't seen in the, in the region. So yeah, that's also a new level of founders came to tackle a big challenge in the region. 
and also funded by European VC, which is STC Ventures that that was backed by Iris Group or Iris Ventures. That was like a, a milestone to start from, and then they they grew. And, 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 and Omar, let's complete this uh, piece of info to the audience by saying that they got acquired by Uber eventually uh, in a deal that was worth of. Three billion dollars, uh, So that's aqu- the acquisition announcement was in 2019, and the execution was in 2020. For, for uh, how much, if you Janu- can remind us? January, 3.2 billion. But the journey actually created also a lot of interesting changes. Actually, the round B and C of of Kareem brought a lot of new money to the round of family offices. Of so I know many of the family offices who joined uh, this round and got also maybe three or four x of of their money. And they were very happy that we just came and in one year or two, we, we brought three or four X. This is a very, this is a great asset class. So it was like a learning and successful learning for those guys. They started to talk about it and everyone got uh, started to get more excited about the asset class and they started to discover things. Not necessarily now, not necessarily that uh, the newcomers to the asset class uh, were really successful. Actually, most of them, they failed to regenerate any meaningful multiples. This is where I'm worried that many of those who tried to get in uh, the wrong way will just tag this asset class with failure. It's maybe something that we are also working on because when family offices, I met a lot of them actually, not necessarily for raising, but also for just discussing. Actually, some of them also are approaching to learn how did we build the raw adventures or something like that. So. The idea of most of them is that it's not doesn't sound complicated. I think we can do it. Yeah. And this is where I was warning them that please be careful. It's not easy. It sounds easy, but 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 practically it's very difficult. And you need really to be careful because the best deals may not really come to your office. The best deals may always be for those who are actively looking for deals yeah. and actively also creating value to their uh, portfolios. So that's this is one of the learnings that we are trying to inject. And I think we are reaching now a very interesting new level of people who are saying that we will not do it anymore. We, are, we will search for the best managers out there and then invest with them. This is maybe the year that we can see this change happening. It's actually curious because just last night I had a conversation with a US-based placement agent who had for a year now had a very, very strong interest from European family offices to get into tech deals direct. And he used to do placement work into funds, but this last year has been very active in terms of people wanting direct access to companies because they thought they could pick them themselves, right? And VC has been somewhat easy for some time, right? <laughs> Everything would go up. I'm curious to hear how the changes that are happening right now in the market, how are you seeing that pan out in the MENA region? Oh, that's this is one of the most confusing questions to us. And actually, uh, it's almost every analyst in the market is talking about the, the deep recession. But there are also some other signs that shows that maybe... Maybe there is also a way out of, of this recession. So we don't know really what will happen in Q3, Q4 time. We have enough reasons why GCC can be the least impacted globally for uh, when it comes to the recession impact. I think there are no really, really reasons why the consumers in the GCC will decrease their consumption. The level of spending, government spending, in GCC is uh, on track. Actually, they are now accelerating spending. 
And you know that most of the income comes in this region, comes from government spending. And not necessarily direct spending, but through projects. So the mega projects that, that, are, that are happening in Saudi Arabia, in UAE, in, in Qatar, and many other countries are at very high and very healthy levels. There is very low likelihood that, that unemployment will, will increase. There is a, a low, very low likelihood that consumers will stop or decline their spending. So this is where I think there is no really reason why the companies will show maybe lower than expected uh, results and the market will collapse for reasons uh, that relates to sentiment, global sentiment. Yes, global sentiment can always be influencing the markets, but not the major, let's say, driver of where the market will go. The major driver will always be the profitability of the companies, the healthness of the companies. And I, I don't think that the companies in the region or especially in the GCC will be affected. I had to dive into this because everyone is talking about it, right? Um, but I think we should get back on track. And we were talking before around, you know, how you pivoted out of the family business to start what would be somewhat of a CVC or strategic investor connected to the family very closely. And then you went from that small fund to then actually raise a purebred VC fund. I'd love to hear your, your takeaways from that story thinking about what is the difference between having been a CVC slash strategic investor to being a purebred and, and what are core learnings there? Yes, it's very, very uh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you for raising this, uh, Andreas. So I started in, uh, in 2015 because, uh, and, and you know that the family then decided to back me in the, in the first attempt. So I thought that maybe as long as there is some level of, of excitement from the family about the technology and, and VC, that we can create some synergies from our investments. And we can also direct our, our target investments to help or support or serve the motherships, which is the family business. And that was like an assumption that was very, very hard assumption because the family, the businesses, the corporates were not ready for these type of synergies. And the readiness is not something that is uh, right or wrong, but it doesn't really match any any corporate. You can't really say that for you can pick any corporate and tell them you need to digitize now and you need to synergize with startups. It's a journey. It's a learning curve. It's also it comes with hiring plans and hiring qualities. So the corporate back in 2015-16 were not ready really to synergize with the similar startups in their domains, like if, if we are talking about logistics technology, uh, the logistics company of the family was not really ready for this type of synergies. I, I spent a small portion of the fund, so I said then, should I spend all of this fund in, in companies that I hope one of them or two will synergize with the family? I don't think that this is maybe the right way. So what we did in 2016 is we pivoted to become pure financial, to look for the best deal in the region, regardless of the synergies that can happen between these companies and the LP, the one LP that we have, I think it served us a lot in, in many ways. Because in the beginning, we were pitching the right ventures as this is the VC that you can synergize with a big corporate in logistics technology or automotive or real estate or whatever. And we were a bit not really sharp when it comes to other type of value add 
things that we can do. And with this segregation, uh, we were forced to really work hard on how to really become a standout VC without the help of our LP. So it worked a lot. And uh, actually, I'm very happy that we reached to new levels of value add. Of course, the family is, is very supportive, very helpful now. I think now the co- corporates of, uh, of Al-Majdu'i are much more ready and much more also aggressive when it comes to technology. But also, we have about 25 other LPs. We have also more and more uh, value-add services that we can do to our portfolio companies. We have much bigger networks that we can also connect our startups to and help them connecting with the right stakeholders around them. I think this is where the VC can be much stronger if they can spin off from one one corporate. And uh, unless the corporate is, is something like Google or Microsoft, this is something else or different. But if the corporate is not technology, pure technology provider, then maybe there is no enough uh, value add that you can do from a single LP. I have to ask this and dive deeper because right now, so every single time that VC is going up, then we see more and more corporate VCs coming out as well. So all of a sudden they want to do their own CVCs. And then the markets start retracting. It starts getting difficult to be a VC. And then typically funding for those programs tend to get slashed. That makes me think, or I'm absolutely certain that there's a lot of CVCs out there right now where the the GPs are thinking, how will we survive in this time? Because we're starting to see the priorities of the corporate shifting. I'd love to hear you think a bit about the value that the corporate and your family gets out of Riot today, aside from the financial, and maybe contrast that to if they had had you as a pure (laughs) CVC. So number one, uh, I think, should be the financial returns. I think think Riot 1 is doing very well. I think we are doing uh, much better than the uh, top quartile or top decile in the at least in our region, uh, this is what I know. So from, from that perspective, the financial returns is very healthy. When it comes to other returns, strategic returns, there are some level of interactions between the corporates and some of our uh, startups. And this interaction is now much stronger than before and much more mature than before. So when, for example, Majdui Logistics, decide to talk to Trilla, which is one of our portfolio companies in logistics technologies. They talk with the right tools, with the right language, and with the right also mindset to say that we need this and we need that. And this is where I think the asks and the uh, maturity of of agreements that are happening between the, the corporate and the startup is far better than 2016 era, for example. So, yes, I think there is a, a good level of synergies that are happening. Sierra, for example, is now synergizing with the Majdui Automotive. Trilla is synergizing with the Majdui Logistics. Uh, we can also pick uh, maybe some other companies. Lemma is also talking to the CFO of the group to also uh, provide some, let's say, help and how to discount payables. Many of the portfolio companies are talking to the family business in a much more mature way. I think this is where the real thing can happen for any corporate. I think no corporate will start aware from day one, but they need to try and they need to do something to, uh, and they maybe sometimes invest, 
until they learn fully what how can they deal with the technologies technology is not really easy to to handle especially these days yeah yeah it's a very important perspective to state now right that that corporates should maybe think about spinning out the vc firm rather than shutting down the program so that was that was my only comment um, mustafa feel free yeah just uh, you know you've explained to us the journey of ride and how it you know, beveted from the family office to be an independent VC with other LBs on your board. So I'm just wondering, you know, most of the LBs in the region are family offices, high net worth individuals. And I would assume that there would be a little bit of competition between most of the family offices in Saudi. You know, you would find at least one vertical similar in their portfolio with other family offices, whether it's logistics, automotive technology, So now you're positioned in the market as an independent VC, that you're not affiliated to the family in a way. But have you faced any struggles or challenges raising money from other LBs in Saudi or UAE because they consider you, you know, part of the, this family business, which is in a way a competitor to them? You know, I'm asking this question because I'm, I'm seeing a lot of family offices in the region, even now also in Egypt and other countries, Uh, are getting into this business, I think uh, this is one of the challenges that they're also thinking about. Excellent, excellent. So because we haven't had the intensity of raising so far, so I think I think fund two was mainly uh, talking to the inbound interest only. We weren't really going to every family office there and test whether we they want to convert or not or to come to, to our fund or not. I'm not sure. And I don't assume that this is, okay, yeah, I'm affiliated to the family because my name is uh, is the family name. And this is where I can't really say that. And also I have I hold some positions like board members uh, in some of the companies in the, in the family business. So I can't segregate myself. It's very, very hard. And even people will not really see it this way. The only thing that I can say is that VC may always stay neutral asset class as long as it's for pure financial. And I think the pool of families in our portfolio are perceiving us as neutral party and neutral also manager. And by the way, the Ra Adventures is not run by Omar alone. Uh, it's, uh, we have now four partners and the partners are coming from a very diverse backgrounds. So whenever there is someone who may not really be comfortable dealing with Omar, uh, there is uh, Saad uh, can be more comfortable to deal with or maybe Talal or maybe Wael. So this is where I think it's very healthy, not only to segregate and spin off the VC and stay alone there. It's very healthy to also have strong partners around with you and also have, a, a, let's say, a better image and position in the market that you are not affiliated with anyone. You are actually a standalone financial institution that invests in startups. We are going toward that direction. The more we acquire uh, partners, diverse partners, the more that we will be better positioned away from any entity. And for example, now we have uh, PIF fund of funds with the biggest portion in the fund too. And this is not really putting them as affiliated to Raid or Raid is affiliated to them. This is, this is where I think it's very healthy to stay independent. And I second Andreas saying that corporates They need really to make it a successful story for their VC uh, investments. 
either by doing a successful program or by doing a, a spin-off VC that will have the right also alignment of interest between them and the managers. Because most the biggest problem that, that corporate VCs are, are facing is the misalignment of this interest, that the managers are getting salaries and minimal commission for their investments or incentives, but not necessarily the incentives that the independent GPs are having. And this is what, what makes them always uh, asking themselves, how can I compete with those guys who are working day and night, trying to get into the best deals, and they have enough incentives to do that, while I'm, I'm getting my salary, full salary, I'm very comfortable, and I feel that if I didn't get it, it's okay. It's uh, five years until they figure out that I'm not doing well, uh, which is okay for them or her. And this is where I think it's not really something healthy for corporate VCs if they do it the structure that I saw it in many other CVCs. So, yeah, this is uh, my take on that. And I always encourage yeah. CVCs to have more and more independent form or structure. Just before I let Mustafa take us to a deep dive on your thesis, which I for sure think that we should have, I just want to ask you, Omar, because you touched here on incentives and how LPs should act. I'm curious now that we have you here, I'd love to hear if the MENA region, do you see the MENA region's LPs accepting normal market standards in terms of LPAs? Or are there specific parts of LPAs in the MENA region that tend to be a bit different? Just because we have, you know, European GPs thinking about raising from MENA region LPs and then okay, what should you be aware of that this is a very typical approach or, or requirement? Yeah, so I think maybe the easiest uh, way to filter your LPs is by asking them if they joined another VC before or not. Yeah. And this is maybe the first thing to do, that you will know immediately if those guys are familiar to my LPA or not. I think there is an increasing number of, of families who are investing abroad and they are familiar with the LPAs. So I'm not worried about, about them reading the LPA, understanding them, and maybe accept, accept them uh, with the right uh, terms. My only concern is that some of them may ask for minimal joining to the fund and, and co-investment rights. Why is that? The families and the investors in general in, in the region, they are used to deal-by-deal deal investments. Yeah. And unfortunately, the structures in Saudi Arabia and CMA and Capital Market Authority are not helping in that side. They are now revamping this structure to make sure that funds can be managed in a GPLP structure. Mm -hmm. But until now, we don't have this structure. And this is where uh, the deal by deal is emphasized, actually. Okay. And also, families, there is no really track record for anyone in the region, especially for the PE side and also VC. How can I trust putting my money in a blind pool and uh, just trust this team of people will, will invest properly without really checking what they are doing? Yeah. This is not really something that they are used to do. And this is where it's very difficult to see people who are investing in a blind pool unless they put minimal amount and they try to go deal by deal basis after that. I think there is a lot of things that we should do in the region, especially in Saudi Arabia, to really create this level of awareness that blind pools are actually more better for you because creating portfolio of companies, especially in the VC asset class, is something that will hedge your your money, that will make your money in a lower risk, in a lesser in a lesser risk. And and if you try to pick your portfolio yourself, you need really to have the same tools and the same experiences that the team is having to make sure that you can construct your 
portfolio and manage it. Otherwise, just leave it to them and check their track record and make sure that you can really create enough value to them to make sure that also the, the portfolio can be successful. Yeah. This is maybe the best way to get into this asset class, in my opinion. I'm happy I asked that question. <laughs> I also spoke to some MENA-located people who said, well, you should also expect that many will be thinking about whether the vertical you're investing in, the types of companies you're investing in, have an application and value add for the region because there is a strong patriotic movement as well. Have you seen that? Do you think that Europeans should expect that? Yeah. So investors from the region are used to investments in Europe, by the way. And uh, if you can notice, maybe many of the high net worth individuals and families are owning uh, properties in Europe. So they are aware about the, the European market in general. And there is a high level of touch points between the GCC and Europe in general uh, in, in the business side. So this is where I think it's not difficult to explain why European startups and European VC investments can be feasible to them. The only question will be, what is your track record as a manager or as a team? Yeah. And I think this is maybe the hardest for anyone in the world, not yeah. only in Europe for European VCs. But I think if you can ask any family or, or any individual, is it better for me to invest in Middle East or in Europe in the VC asset class? I, I think Europe can be more feasible if I can pick the right manager. Yeah. In general, I'm saying now. In general, this is maybe the perception yeah. about uh, VC in Europe. But from the other side, if you if you dig deeper, you will see that maybe the region has much bigger gap, digital gap, than Europe. And this is where I think the opportunity from the deeper side, I think, can be here in Middle East, North Africa, much bigger if 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 the person or if the investor can pick the right manager, in my opinion. And this is where I think it's somehow debatable, but it will end up always having who is the manager that I'm talking to. And what is the track record of this team or this manager that they do? And the longer the track record, of course, the better the chances of this or that manager will will raise money. I think also there is another another aspect of, of how to get into the region through referrals. Especially in the VC asset class, the referrals are much more appreciated. I can tell you, even in US, in my opinion, I think anywhere in the world, as long as you come through referral, through a, a trustworthy referral, I think you can really get better chances of raising from anywhere, especially GCC, because GCC also, is, the culture here is relying on trust. And whenever there is uh, someone who is coming from a trustworthy channel, the likelihood of me to invest with them is high also. I can completely second that, spending the last uh, five years in Riyadh. So yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, Omar. So speaking of the opportunities, I really like how you describe the gaps and, and the challenges in, in our region as opportunities because they are they are good opportunities for many investors and entrepreneurs to tackle these challenges and fill in these gaps so let's also dive deep on your thesis how do you see these opportunities and and how that was evolved over time the market and in, in, in general has changed over the years and, and the startups and the venture scene has tremendously changed in particular so we would like yeah. to hear more about your thesis. How do you invest and why do you invest the way you do as raw definitely and also as Omar? How do you see the opportunities, the trends, the top or the most attractive verticals in the region now? 
I'm from the region. I'm from Saudi Arabia, okay? And when anyone wants to start investing, they will invest from the region that they know best. So maybe this is the first step that uh, why I picked uh, the region or why we picked the region to invest uh, in. Number two, I think, and maybe this is uh, uh, something uh, obvious also for most of the audience, the digital gap in Middle East, North Africa, if we also include Pakistan, I think the digital gap is massive. And this is due to many, many things, uh, including also the lack of development in most of the countries in this region, unfortunately. The consequence of that is that the infrastructures of these countries, if we talk about logistics infrastructure or financial infrastructure, whatever we can talk about, uh, has a big deficiency gap. And this is where I think technology is maybe the only solution to leapfrog this deficiency. Uh, I don't see other, any other way of doing it, unfortunately. And this is where I think um, logistic technology, financial technology, even energy technologies and renewable technologies are fundamentals to these countries. And we are lucky that Egypt, GCC, Pakistan are aware of this and are working hard really to empower technology companies and technology startups and technology investments across the globe. This is very, very, very interesting times for us to really invest in a country that used to be fragmented in several ways, especially political ways. But when it comes to technology, I think these countries are seeing the importance of integration, the importance of enabling cross-border technologies, which is very lovely to see and, and very happy that I'm in this era of empowerment to technology companies. If you go to GCC now, you can find two big fund of funds, developmental fund of funds. Uh, each one of them is, is around $1 billion. One of them is working at earlier stages. One of them is working at later stages. And they are deploying and they are committing to funds everywhere in the world. Very lovely movement happening in Saudi Arabia now. I think Saudi Arabia maybe has the biggest budget for supporting technologies in the region. But next to it is UAE now. UAE is also aggressively working and attracting uh, startups uh, from the region and more also from the globe. Dubai and Abu Dhabi are competing with each other. Very lovely competition. Very healthy competition. I see it. And the third country that I see it, very promising, very, very promising is Egypt. If we exclude the volatility of, of currency uh, price, I think Egypt can be maybe one of the most, let's say, of largest countries in Africa uh, when it comes to providing or, or, or creating new startups, uh, successful startups, let's say, and well-funded startups. And I think uh, this devaluation of the currency hit the market a bit in a severe way, let's say, uh, but this is maybe an interim problem. I think uh, for longer term, Egypt fundamentally is maybe the right place for African startups to come and build their companies uh, in. This is where I see it also a hub one day. And I see also the government is very serious when it comes to supporting companies, technology companies. There is no even one step backward yeah, since we, we started to invest in, in Egypt, which is very promising also to see. On a very casual note, I had the pleasure to meet your partners here in Cairo 10 days ago, Wael and uh, Talal, okay, during you. the Egypt VC Summit here in Cairo. We had a very nice little chat. I can definitely understand the confidence you were talking about your partners after meeting the two gentlemen. So, yeah. Yeah, now you know Raid more, huh? because you saw more partners. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, excellent. I love it. Um, Omar, there's a nuance to what you said, which is, 
you don't think much of countries, you think more about regions and cities. We're also looking uh, at doing a syndicate into a fund manager here in Europe that is not saying I'm investing in Denmark, Sweden, and France. He says I'm investing in Paris, Copenhagen, and Stockholm. I'd love to hear because it's the same thing that you're saying, right? It's regions and then it's, it's these cities that make up the hubs. I'd love to hear you expand a bit on that. This is historically the thing that is happening for technology, actually. If you can trace it back to San Francisco or Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley is the hub for technology industry in the U.S. And if investors back in the 90s or 2000 wants to invest, they need to move or they need to just always travel to Silicon Valley to find pipeline. So for us as investors, we seek pipeline. We seek healthier pipeline. Not necessarily there is a company came from a small country here or there means that I will move there. I need hundreds of them to really uh, select some to invest with. And this is where I think hubs are the place where investors should really stay or should really have a place in. So the hubs in the region is uh, Riyadh, Dubai, Cairo. From my perspective, this is my opinion. And maybe there are some emerging hubs that are coming, but I think those three hubs are accumulating power, accumulating more and more momentum and more and more uh, initiatives that can put them as the fact of the market. And this is where I think Abu Dhabi is, is something. Abu Dhabi is also emerging. Uh, I think there are hundreds of, of startups now in Hub 71. I hear that maybe 120 or 150, which is very interesting in a very short span of time. So if we can add Abu Dhabi is also uh, something fair to say. But I think uh, Riyadh, Dubai and Cairo are the three cities that we seek pipeline from. Pakistan is also emerging and also Istanbul. If we can say that Karachi and Istanbul are the also two emerging hubs, I think we are saying uh, a fact. We're actually raising a syndicate right now for a manager in Istanbul. And I can only say yes, for sure. I really? have heard on the Turkish ecosystem, for sure. Amazing. Um, so, uh, Omar, final question before the quickfire round. A lot is happening in Europe these days on the geopolitical landscape. I would love to hear you just say a bit, how do you think about geopolitical risks? Because that's something that you've been exposed to for a little more time than most Europeans have. A geopolitical situation in Middle East is getting better, in my opinion. And I think the return of normal relations between Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and also some peace agreements happened between some countries and Israel are generating like a positive direction to overall the positive direction toward the geopolitical situation in the region. Uh, hopefully that also some other countries will also join to make sure that everything uh, will be normalized. Actually, the strength of this region is by adding all of the countries to the economy and integrate them together. And this is where I think uh, it's better for every country. We are very optimistic about what's happening in the region, uh, especially in GCC, in my opinion, and also in Egypt, because we are bullish about Egypt also. We see uh, big changes happening. This is where I think geopolitical sentiment in the region is very healthy. I see how European friends are having very negative sentiment about, about what's happening now in Ukraine and in Europe. I hope that they can resolve this problem very fast so that they can also recover and come back to track. But I don't think that this will affect the technology uh, companies in Europe, uh, in my opinion. I think actually in some scenarios, uh, technology can be a solution for some of these problems that are coming out of this geopolitical uh, challenge. 
we are used to these things and we feel that things are getting better in the region at least. Before going to the quickfire round, I wanted to ask about uh, speaking of the GCC. Uh, the World Cup is coming to our region for the first time ever in the next couple of months. So do you think startups can benefit from the World Cup Uh, as if the football fans as well? Would there be opportunities for startups from the region serving this huge number of people uh, visiting the region and also the World Cup? Do you think there's something could be done in, in this context? You know, I, I haven't thought about it uh, this way, Mustafa. That's a very good uh, perspective. You know, because it's it's a short, <laughs> it's a short time. It's, uh, I, I think it's hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands Uh, of people coming to Qatar yeah. uh, and, and also many of them would be visiting neighbor countries like UAE and Saudi during that period of time. So I think it's a good opportunity yes, I, if you agree with me. That World Cup is going to be uh, uh, the best time to be fundraising and setting up a lot of <laughs> a lot of meetings. With <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's a good idea to make fundraising kiosks in the fields. It's very interesting. I haven't thought about it, Mustafa. I, but I assume that travel uh, tech companies like logistics tech companies, like ride-hailing companies, like these type of, of companies will definitely work well in these times. I'm not sure if there is something longer term that can be accumulated from this one because the visitors are coming for two months and returning back the, and the users that you will acquire may not really be a permanent user. So I'm not sure how this can be a build-up For, for new countries, like if, if there's something that to think about here. But it's very interesting. Thank you for giving us a thing to think about now for the upcoming event. The fundraising. Show, what are the possibilities? Yeah. <laughs> fundraising is definite. <laughs> fundraising is our fate, unfortunately. Yeah. So fundraising, for me, for whom you mean, Andreas? You mean for, for Europeans or for, for Middle Eastern? Not for Middle Eastern, of course, because you're there, right? You can bring all the foreigners <laughs> to uh, to all the great places, and you can say, "By the way, I'm also raising a fund these days." <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's... Come, come and watch uh, the, the the final game of the World Cup, and I'm raising for for the next. <laughs> that's that that would be interesting. I think it will depend on on uh, whether the team will win or lose for that. Yeah, that might be. <laughs> Maybe we have an idea there that uh, you know, David and I will bring a bunch of LPs. Uh, with this down to the World Cup, and then we'll then we'll go and explore uh, Qatar. I think that would be an, an interesting trip. <laughs> Let's do that, man. Omar, we're going back to the final stage of this very interesting conversation where we have a quick fire round, quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds. So uh, I hope you're ready for that. You never told me about it, so I'm not ready, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Question number one, from your perspective, what are the biggest differences in the venture space between MENA and Europe? I think the maturity level of companies, I think uh, Europe has more deep techs than the region. And I think uh, from the other side, the regional founders are more risk takers. So I think also you can find talented people in the region are more likely to, to build their startups than in Europe, in my opinion. I think uh, Europeans has also, the European entrepreneurs has better chances of raising grants and raising also funds than uh, Middle Eastern. So a company from Middle East emerging the same level of, of European uh, companies may really have stronger skills of how to really maneuver and how to really also stay leaner. Uh, so, yeah, I think skills sometimes in, uh, can be better in the less funded companies. What are your top tips for emerging VCs who are fundraising? God help you. It's very hard, <laughs> especially in these days. 
I actually thought that you would say, come and attend the World Cup. <laughs> yeah, oh, I forgot. So that's that's your advice, actually. I didn't say it, but yeah, I think I think it's it's a good a good idea to attend the World Cup. And uh, but it's very hard time for emerging DC managers. You need really to find the gap, and the gap is logical and the gap is meaningful, and maybe also to support yourself with a strong or stronger partner that can also help you. Let's say reduce the risk for therapies. And last, what can we expect from you in the near future? We're interested to know. For experienced LPs, 2023-2024 should be two of the best vintages in the, in the BC Asset class. This is why we are actually preparing ourselves for Fund 3, which can be kicked off in Q4 2022 or Q1 2023. And we are bullish about our strategy, which is very early stage. So we come at the earliest possible point of the winners that we assume that they are winners. And we fund them at the earliest possible stage we can come, even precede sometimes. So we think that this strategy is actually more needed in 2023, 2024. And we can also obtain better prices and better chances of getting uh, bigger stakes in these companies. So yeah, of course, we're bullish about what's coming up. I love your uh, nuance there with saying that for the experienced LP, because the non-experienced are, uh, you know, they're getting cold feet right now, but the experienced ones that exactly. dare to actually invest, they are looking at two very good vintages coming up. Omar, thanks so much for joining us today. This was amazing. We are looking forward to bringing you back for something that's more LP focused. So thanks a million for being a strong supporter. Thank you, Omar. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andreas. Thank you very much, Mustafa, for the chance of talking to you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.